Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for uh, you being our Father and for Jesus that you've sent. We ask that your spirit will come and lighten our minds, transform our hearts, and open the avenues for a message to go forward, to lighten the world, so we can see you face to face real soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson four in the quarterly, the least of these ministering to those in need, and the title of the lesson is Mercy and Justice in Psalms and Proverbs. And when you think about that, what is mercy and justice in God's kingdom? So what is justice? Find, define, when you think of justice, what is it? What's, what's, what does the word mean? What is justice? Doing what's right. That's exactly right. Doing what's right or doing what's just. That's what justice is. Well, how do we define it? What determines what is right and what is just? We understand justice is doing right, but now we have to determine what is right, right? Okay? So what is it, the base, the standard that determines what's right or just? God's law. That's exactly correct. And then the next question, of course, is how do you understand God's law? Do you understand God's law functioning like human law, just a system of rules that we make up that require judicial enforcement? Or do you understand God's law, God is creator? He builds reality. His laws are the laws upon which reality are built. So if you think about those two ways of understanding law, what is justice look like in an imperial imposed law system like a human law system? What's justice look like? What is the just right thing to do for somebody who transgresses the law in that system? Inflicting punishment. Inflicting the appropriate amount of punishment on the lawbreaker. That's what justice looks like in that system. But if, God, if you look at the design law system, somebody transgresses design law, what's the just and right action or thing to do? Exactly. So somebody jumps off a bridge and transgresses the law of gravity. Somebody jabs a pencil in their eye. Somebody drinks poison. Uh, whatever you say, if you, do, if you transgress design law and somebody is doing that, your action, if you're doing justice, is to deliver them. Deliver them. What is mercy under the imposed human law model? In the imposed human law model, justice is what? Punishment. Justice is inflicting punishment in the, in the human law model. So then what is mercy in the human law model? Letting them go, forgiving them. House arrest. House arrest, giving them... Mercy is not inflicting the punishment. That's the mercy. Okay? Under the design law model, what is mercy look like in design law model? Forgiveness, healing. Forgiveness. So it would be, could we say it this way? Mercy is ending the suffering. Right. That the transgression of the law is causing. Yeah. That would be mercy. Merciful to deliver them from the suffering of being out of harmony with the law. That would be the mercy. Right? To heal them, to fix them. And to let those go who refuse the healing. To let them reap what the transgression of the law would naturally result in. And the transgression of the law without intervention from God results in what? In design law model. Death. Death. Wages of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. And so mercy in this view is to heal those who will allow it. So the suffering stops and they have health and life. But for those who refuse and will not allow themselves to be healed, mercy is letting them die. And not sustaining them in a, in, a, in a situation of torment for all eternity. 
And that place of torment for all eternity, for those who are in rebellion against God, for those whose hearts are filled with selfishness, for those whose minds are built on lies and distortions and evil, where is the place of torment for them? The presence of God. And God will not tie them to his presence. Why is that? Because he is the infinite source of love and truth. And in the presence of love and truth, their lies can't comfort them anymore. They have full awareness of their own corruption and it torments them. They don't want to be there. And they run and flee from his presence, begging for the mountains to fall on them. So mercy in this position is to give them the consequences, the results of what they have freely preferred and chosen. And if you read in the book, I think it's Greek Controversy, well, and White describes at the end of the thousand years at the, uh, at the uh, New Jerusalem coming down and, and when Christ fully reveals himself and the, and the fires of love and truth come down upon the earth, it says the, the, wicked, the, the wicked in the end, um, their death is, she says these words, voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. And that's how it works in design law. But if you have the wrong law, if you think God runs his universe like humanity, then instead of seeing God mercifully letting them go so they won't suffer because he loves them too much to keep them in a position of suffering, instead you see God using his power to create a miracle to keep them alive for many days to torture them as long as they deserve before he kills them. Which is what's taught commonly in, in the rest of Christianity. Well, he'll torture them for all eternity. And in much of Adventism, he tortures them as long as they deserve before he kills them. Both versions have a very untrustworthy, corrupt God. It's only when we come back to see God as, as the creator and his laws upon which, which life exists are his laws, then we understand. Yes? This is a scriptural reference for what you just said. Um, Isaiah 33, starting with verse um, 14. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling groups to God goes, Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the eternal burning? He who walks righteously and speaks what is right. Who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, etc. Yep, those are the ones who live in the fire. That's because the fire is God's, God, our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews twelve twenty nine. So our memory verse today says, defend, uh, Psalms 82.3, defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. Notice justice here is not punishing the oppressor, but delivering the oppressed. That's, that's justice. The right thing is to deliver those who are suffering under the weight of sin. So this is Bible justice. And why is this Bible justice? Because you don't have to inflict punishment upon a person who puts a plastic bag over their head or smokes or drinks or does drugs or lies or cheats or worships a false god. You don't have to inflict punishment upon them. What about the murderer and the thief? Does justice in God's kingdom require that we inflict punishment upon murderers, rapists, thieves, and terrorists? Why or why not? Why not? It's inherent in the disease. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for them to transgress again. It changes them and moves them away from God's character. And, and they sever themselves from the source of life, and the end is ruin and death. That's why. You can't avoid the damaging consequences of perpetrating evil. What happens in the heart, mind, and character of the murderer? What happens to the heart, mind, and character, the rapist, the thief? Is this, does something happen to them when they do these things? 
sears the conscience, warps the character, hardens the heart. Is though, are those changes that happen in the heart, character, mind of the sinner, are they an infliction by God? God uses his power to make it that way. So what kind of law is in operation when this is occurring? This is design law. Natural consequence of deviating from God's design is destructive to those who do it. It's important to point out that even if they don't get caught and brought to human justice, these things still occur. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You can't avoid it. So, so does this mean, then, if we just said that in God's system of justice, you don't inflict punishment. Upon, does that mean, then, it's unjust to have criminal courts here on earth and put rapists, molesters, murderers, and others in prison? Is that an unjust thing to do? No. What would be God's purpose in having human governments inflict punishment upon lawbreakers if, in fact, you don't have to inflict punishment because they're searing their conscience, hardening their hearts, warping their characters. In God's system, the corruption is natural. What would be the purpose in God's design? Because he talks about this in Romans, that God is ordained that governments do this. Why would God design for this to happen, to inflict punishments upon lawbreakers if it's inherent? To protect the innocent. You're exactly right. One factor is to protect the innocent from exploitation. Is it, what else? Prevention of future crime. The Old Testament particularly is full of that. So other people will see this and be afraid. Learn something. And, and what is a word that we use that when you bring something to a halt, when you, you, you stop future crime, we call that we are arresting it. <laughs> That's why we arrest people. We arrest them to stop the, the, the ongoing crime. Now, when ongoing crime happens, it's, it's destructive to the innocent in the community. But what's happening in the heart, mind, and character of the criminal? If your son was the one doing some crime in the neighborhood, he has a drug addiction, and he's stealing from the neighbors to fund his addiction, what would you want to have happen for your son? For him to be, ha- be free to continue to do this? Or would you want him to have something arrest his destructive lifestyle and put a halt to it. And so God allows, the, and in, in fact ordains the human governments to do this, not as a, uh, as a representation of how his government works, not at all, but as a method to, number one, put a stop to the destruction, both to the innocent, the community, and to the character of the one committing the crimes. They don't have as much guilt now. They don't have as much corruption of their character if their behavior is brought to a halt. Does that make sense? And the consequences of going to prison can alert them and have them reflect and reconsider the life path they were on, gives them opportunity, and many people we know in prison have come to salvation. They've met Jesus, given their heart to the Lord. Because society held them accountable. Holding them accountable paying your prime, having, ha, having some substitute come into a human court and go to jail for you, that has no effect. This is a consequence directly on them to alert them that that path is destructive and give them opportunity to reflect. And to create a stable society where anarchy does not rule so we can have meetings like this safely and we can develop ministries like this and we can develop um, materials to share with people because we don't live in anarchy where somebody walks in just because they have more guns than us and tell us they don't like what we're teaching and so they're going to shut us down. 
No, we have a society that creates a certain safety net so that we can have the opportunity for the gospel to be shared. And here's another reason God permits this to happen, to prevent feuds and recurring cycles of, of tribal violence and family violence when somebody's wronged you. Well, you know, the eye for that, we're going to wrong you in this back and forth. Ah, the Hatfields and the McCoys, it just never ends. Because now the, there's a, a, an, an, an um, a, um, impartial body of legal authority that will take up the matter and deal with it. We don't have to. We can surrender that to the, the government, so to speak. All of these things are designed to try to bring an order to society, but none of this is God's method of ruling his government. And this is the big lie that most people accept, that God runs his government like humans run their government. He doesn't. Ask this question. Why does any human being, in the history of the human race since Adam fell, commit crime? What is the ultimate root cause of any human being committing a crime. Selfishness. Selfishness, which we would call sinfulness in the heart. Okay, Sinfulness in the heart, minds, and character. And how did every human being, other than Adam and Eve, since Adam and Eve, don't count Adam and Eve, every other human being, how did they become sinful? Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Understand that these behaviors that we call crimes are a manifestation of a condition with which every human being has been born. And they didn't choose the condition. And without intervention from the designer, God, the creator, to fix, heal the heart and mind, without him intervening to heal the condition, the natural, unavoidable outcome will be criminal conduct, whether it's codified in a system or not. Because human laws change. Things that are illegal today were not illegal in certain societies in the past. It's quite legal if you go to war in many societies to kill others and then take the women home and rape them. This wasn't a crime. This was what, what, what you went to war for. But it was still sin in God's eyes. And why would people do it? What was it a manifestation of? A condition that was not being treated by God's presence in their life. And in countries where there is significant punishment and pretty much immediate punishment for what you do, there are statistically far fewer crimes. I'm saying the preventative factor is also... This is true. In Singapore, if you get caught selling drugs, you're executed. And it usually happens within two weeks. You go to trial, you get convicted, you get killed. And they have very little drug sales in Singapore. It's true. Why? Because what's the motive of that sinful heart? Self-preservation. Watching out for self. In an American court system, even if you get convicted of gruesome crimes and you, can, and you get sentenced to death, it's 25 or 30 years down the road before the sentence is finally carried out. It's so far disconnected, it has very little value for people. Very little value. So I agree with you, and, that's, and it does show that, because, it, because the motive isn't one of love, it's one of self-protection. So from God's perspective, though, if we think about God's government, what is it that God would want? What does he want to achieve for each murderer, each rapist, each pedophile? What does God want for every one of them? Healing. Healing. Healing their heart and mind so that they are just like Jesus and would rather die than ever hurt anybody again. Now, I read another sci-fi series, <laughs> which, uh, which is called Star Force. 
which takes humanity into the future and goes out and visits lots of other um, uh, solar systems in the galaxy and, and meets many alien species. But the interesting thing in the book is that the, the star force uh, culture, whenever they encounter another species that are immoral or corrupt or evil, in which they, this other, other species uh, kills others, exploits others, enslaves others, uh, even eats others, um, star force sees uh, all living creatures as individuals, and those with the greatest abilities have the greatest responsibility to protect everyone else. And so when they, uh, so they're all vegetarians in this thing. They won't eat even the, the lowest animal. In fact, it's a requirement. If you want to become part of the Star Force system, you have to give up all, all animal eating. You cannot exploit these lower creatures. Well, they can't speak. So what? They are individuals. Can't hurt them. So they protect them. Uh, it's very interesting. So when they go to war with a corrupt species uh, that is seeking to kill Star Force, Star Force doesn't kill them. Star Force stuns them all. <laughs> And then takes the individuals and puts them in these isolation chambers where they have opportunity to learn, exercise, grow, and ultimately change their... And what they do is they destroy their culture. They don't destroy the people. And all those who grow and become uh, uh, healthy citizens of Star Force are set free, and they join Star Force. Those who don't are left free to stay in their isolation system and ultimately die of old age. Sounds a lot like now. And? And? Star Force keeps getting stronger and stronger because all of those who uh, are assimilated that were their enemies become their friends and start supporting these principles that, and it was very, many times Star Force lost a lot of and paid a big price because they would not use the methods, and and, and they talk in here about the light side and the dark side, and the dark side will use the the corrupt methods for a short gain, but the light side will often suffer, suffer, suffer in in the short term in order to win in the long term. It's quite an interesting way they, they carry this out. Um, do you think it is right or just for Star Force to refuse to kill those who are killing them and instead seek to win them to friendship, which is what they're constantly trying to do. They're constantly trying to win everybody to friendship. Is that right or just to do? Or is, is the more just thing when somebody's trying to kill you and has actually killed your own friends? When this is what's happened. Some of them lost their closest friends to some of these people. They still wouldn't kill them. They try to redeem them or save them. It's a very interesting dynamic in the, in the book. Well, what about God's government? Isn't this what God is doing? Uh, he's not trying to destroy the people of earth. He's trying to destroy the selfish culture of earth and to destroy selfishness out of our hearts to win us to friendship. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17-20, the Good News translation says the following. Anyone who's joined to Christ is a new being. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is done by God, who through Christ changed us from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message is that God was making the whole human race his friends through Christ. God did not keep an account of their sins when he... Wow, you got it. He did not keep an account of their sins? That's the penal view. You have to keep an account. God did not keep an account of their sins. And he has given us this, the message which tells how he makes them his friends. Here we are then, speaking for Christ as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, let God change you from enemies into his friends. Isn't that justice? Did you hear justice here? 
That's biblical justice. And do you see how the penal substitutionary lie built on the human-imposed law lie teaches justice is God using his power to torture and kill those who won't love him and trust him? And that only undermines love and trust. Because you can't get love and trust by threatening to kill people who won't love and trust you. You can't get it. And do you see how this false gospel of penal substitution has corrupted Christianity and that we, as an Advent people, this organization, was called into existence for the purpose of rejecting that view of law and calling people back to worship designer, him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in this, and, and, and come back to this message, which is the righteousness by faith message, meaning that we, when we trust God, we open the heart, we become the righteousness of God, Second Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, substitution, so that we might become the righteousness of God was rejected by the leadership in 1888, Righteousness by Faith, and was substituted with penal substitution that you get legally declared to be righteous even though you're not. And that's what our church teaches now. And those who oppose us and cancel our speaking go behind the scenes and say, I don't teach substitutionary atonement and all the lies that are told about this ministry. It's by people who teach the imperial law view. The lie that you don't, you're not actually, you don't actually become righteous. You simply in heaven, in the books of heaven, get declared to be righteous even though you're not righteous. And that's why our church is limping along for 150 years. Because God is waiting for a people to rise up and embrace the truth about him, his character, his methods, his law, and begin telling the world that when you trust him, you actually do become a new person. You're transformed. You get new motives. You get new desires. You get new thoughts. You get new longings. And ultimately, Revelation 12, 11, describing the people that are translated, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. What's that mean? They don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. In other words, they're not me-first, fear-driven, survival of the fittest. Love has replaced fear in their hearts. That's a perfect Christian. Bible perfection, under the penal view, is all about all of it. You get this works and guilt system, all stuff you can do. Under the design law view, it is having a heart that loves and trusts God so much that you would give your life for others. That's Bible perfection. You're matured. And so Daniel became a perfect being. Job was described as being perfect. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, when they wouldn't bow the knee and were willing to die in the furnace, they were perfect in God's sight. All the martyrs, uh, Stephen, all of these people, this was Bible perfection, is your heart has changed. Yes? Do you believe that this substitutionary penal view is, has traction because of the power of guilt that most people have regarding their their mistakes or their sins or whatever, and this is this is something that they just that leadership or the administration, so to speak, the institution will not release because this is part of their power. Uh, I think it's it's that's a piece of it. It's not the whole story, but it's certainly a piece of it. There's no question. First paragraph says it's easy to see that our faith should make a difference in every aspect and experience of our lives, because God cares about every aspect of our lives. Wendell. The penal substitution model that I grew up with talks about erasure of sins. And a favorite text was in Psalms 103, as far as the east is from the west, etc. And yet when you read it, it says, as far as the east is from the west, 
So far does he remove our sins from us. Right. It's not from a book. That's right. He's removing the sins That's exactly right. from us. That's exactly right. Thank you for that. So the lesson says it, sh- it, it is easy to see that our faith should make a difference in every aspect of our life and experience. Which is more accurate? Our faith should make a difference in every aspect of our lives, or our faith does make a difference in every aspect of our life. Genuine faith works. So this goes back to how you, what you mean by faith, and what law lens are you connecting the word faith to? You see, if we mean faith is a creed, a list of fundamental beliefs to which we claim and give attestation to and go through a ritual to be baptized into, if that's what we mean, that's the imperial view. We have declared a legal statement to this faith. This is our faith. If this is what we mean by faith, then it should, should is the right word, that, that's what they mean, it should uh, uh, impact everyone's life. Because people can make a claim to believe many things that don't, they don't truly internalize. So if that's what they mean by faith, stood up one day, looked at those 28, said, yep, I take the 10, and I believe all those, I want to join this organization, then it should impact your life. But if, faith, if by faith we mean that which you truly hold to, internalize, value, build your character upon, upon which we stake our existence, which is design law, writing the law on the heart and mind, then faith does impact every aspect of our life, doesn't it? Yes. Design law, your faith is a transforming experience that impacts the way you live. Under imposed law, well, it should. The point is many believe faith is just a list of stuff you conclude to be true in your head and make a legal proclamation to join an organization rather than that which becomes a part of one's identity, heart, values, and character. As the Bible says, Proverbs 23, 7, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. What kind of law is described in that verse? That's design law. But those who accept the imposed law think it's all about the legal declaration and I've even had people get very concerned. Well, you know, I was baptized, and when they baptized me, they didn't say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So does that count? <laughs> don't they have to say the right words? If they don't say the right words, then it doesn't count, right? I was baptized into Jesus, but they didn't say Father and Spirit, so does, is my baptism good? You see, that, that's the legal view. You can have faith under any circumstance. It could be faith in the wrong thing. Some people are very... Zealous about what they believe. That's correct. That's what, I, that's what I said earlier. True faith is what your heart aligns itself with. What is it that gives your life meaning and direction and purpose? So everybody exercises faith. You're exactly right. And that's why it, true faith, when you understand design law, does impact every aspect of your life. So you either have faith in God and his system and being transformed, or you have faith in yourself, or faith in the world, or faith in a legal structure of some kind. And that will also impact how you live. And that's why in Christianity, those who have that legal view abuse their families just as much as people who don't believe in God at all. Because that's what it does. That's how you function. By beholding, we become changed. So, and that's the key. By beholding, we are changed. Participate in the truth. Trust God with your heart. Understand him. You're transformed to be like him. Design law stuff. Second paragraph says, um, 
Meanwhile, any reflection on life in the fallen world could hardly ignore the injustice that so permeates the human condition. In fact, injustice is repeatedly described as something that our Lord cares about and seeks to relieve. It is he who is the hope of the hopeless. Why? Why is he the hope or why does he seek to relieve injustice? Why? That's what he's like. Okay, okay. So you're saying because that's what he's like, he is good, and that's his motive. He couldn't act any other way because that's what he's like. So how do we remember, measure justice? When you hear stuff like that, God wants to bring justice. Do you remember the parable of the landowner? And in the parable of the landowner, he hires somebody in the morning, he hires somebody at midday, he hires somebody with one hour to go, and he tells them he'll give them what's fair, and he pays them all the same wage. Why did those who worked all day believe the landowner was unjust? Didn't they believe he was unjust? Yeah. Okay. Why did they believe he was unjust? Fair. Why wasn't it fair? Yes, they didn't believe it was because it wasn't fair. Why did they believe that? What law lens were they looking through to consider it wasn't fair? Yes. They viewed it through imposed law. They thought the payment was an arbitrary amount set by the landowner. Thus, when the landowner paid each the same money, they thought it was unfair. I want to show you how design law relieves all the unfairness and shows how beautiful and fair it was. Okay? So, who was able to exercise their muscles more and thus experience greater physical development and strength? The ones that worked all day. Okay? Who was able to exercise their skills more and thus become more efficient and skillful in what they were doing? The ones who worked all day. Who was able to achieve more of their... uh, More achieve more by their own effort, thereby experience greater sense of confidence, achievement, and well-being. Those who worked all day. Uh, Who had the greater time helping the master fulfill his purposes and thereby share in the mission and joy of the master? Those who worked all day. Who was able to spend more time with the master, working with him, and thus getting to know him better? Those who worked all day. Who had a greater opportunity to reflect on the master's fields, his business, his methods, his purpose, and thus grow in their knowledge of the master and how he does things, how he carries out business? Those who worked longer. And in the parable, what does the coin or the payment, which is symbolic, it's a parable, represent something else, what does it actually represent in reality? What is the payment? Value. No, nope. that's not the payment. What? Eternal. eternal life. The payment represents eternal life. And that's why they all get the same payment. They all get fully healed, restored to eternal life. It does, and, and if you think about that process, who gets the benefit on your journey? Is it better to be the thief on the cross who joins the team minutes before you die? Or do you actually have a better life experiencing joining as a child and your whole life on a team? Which is, which, which, who gets more? Who gets the better deal? But when you look at it through the arbitrary human lens, boy, that seems so unfair. And this is why Christ told these parables to challenge. My law is not like the way human governments run. They, the, those who worked all day missed the blessing because they had a lie in their head that God's law works like human law and the reward was arbitrary. This is Satan's lie from the beginning in heaven when he alleged that God arbitrarily takes Michael Jesus into meetings that Lucifer isn't allowed in, God's arbitrary, he's not fair. This is a lie from the very beginning, and it infects our thinking still today. So, uh, last paragraph says, 
Though we can only touch on um, what these books say about this, this topic, perhaps this lesson might inspire us to be more proactive in ministering to the needs of the poor and oppressed and the forgotten who exist all around us and whom we are obligated to help. How do you determine what the poor and downtrodden actually need? How do you know? No. Ooh, okay, all right. So if somebody stand by the road with a sign, you don't know what they actually need, do, do you? Do we determine what a person needs by what they tell us they need? No. <laughs> what about a hungry person who is otherwise healthy? What do they need? Purpose in life. <laughs> Remember the Indian proverb, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish. So what does the man really need? A profession, a, 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 a purpose, a job. Which action meets the true need of the hungry man? Giving him a fish or teaching him to fish? What, does a, uh, what about a hungry man who is otherwise healthy and refuses to work? What does he need? The hunger. Mm -hmm. The hunger. This is 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. That's what he needs. Because what does the hunger motivate him to do? Does our understanding of law make a difference? How does imperial law interpret what people need? And how does design law interpret what people need? Is there a difference? When we love others like our own children... This, if you're having trouble seeing the community, and how, what's it, think about, well, this is my child. If we love others like our own children. What is the primary goal of a loving parent for their child? What's the ultimate primary goal? Independence. Independence, fully functioning adult with a yes. Christian purpose in life. Which, yes, independence, autonomy as a saved person. In other words, they develop Christ-like character in a saving relationship and become an independent, autonomous person. We all agree? Last word of the Holy Spirit, self-governance. That's the goal. So if we love our children, do we give them everything they want? Absolutely. (laughs) Because it would corrupt them, wouldn't it? Because they don't know what's actually healthy for them. They would choose many destructive and unhealthy things. And many times innocence, not knowing. They They don't understand why they're wanting it. And so they need protection from themselves and their children, right? And later they might actually know it and they still want to choose the bad, okay, as they get older, uh, like a drug addict or uh, an alcoholic, uh, uh, an adolescent, they know it's bad, but they still want to choose it. If we love, yes. If we're an adult, should we buy everything we want if we have the means? Uh-huh. Everything that's healthy for you, yes. So that can corrupt you if everything you want, you have the means. Everything that's healthy for you, I said. <laughs> what I said is it can corrupt you if you buy everything you want if you have the means to do it. Well, and I would say, um, if you read in the, in, the holy, holy, uh, in the scriptures, once you have had a heart from the Holy Spirit, then your desires change, and the things you want are the things consistent with God's kingdom, and so you only buy the things that are healthy for you because that's what you want, the healthy stuff. So you could argue that point. So an unconverted heart buying everything they want would destroy themselves, but a converted heart, a godly heart, will only buy the things that are healthy for them because that's all they want. They don't want the unhealthy stuff. If we love our children, do we always treat each child in the exact same way? No. What is the problem in giving every child the exact same treatment? What's the problem? A simple example, but you can extrapolate this to many things. One child has leukemia and the other don't. Do you 
treat all the children with the same treatment that leukemia child's getting? Or do you let this child with leukemia go and visit all the places and go to the playground while, while they're you know, you're immunosuppressed getting their treatment? No, you treat them differently. Now, you can apply that to temperaments. Do children have different temperaments? And do they need different interventions to help them mature and grow and deal with their own self? Yes, they do. And different ages, they need different treatment. That's another point. Kids will often manipulate parents. Well, it's not fair. My sister got to do that. I didn't get any. Okay. I I use that one a lot. You know, but what if one child's gifted in art, music, but another child's gifted in athletics or math? Do you take them both all to the same coach and make them take the same lessons? Or do you give them different lessons to develop their different abilities? In human governments, is there a danger in making too many rules that are rigid and implied without consideration of the situation? Uh-oh. <laughs> How can the desire for fairness in our human justice system, actually cause injury and harm. Can it? How about when we apply rules through a rigid code that focuses on enforcing rules rather than understanding the situation of what the people need? What is the role of government in society and how do we apply God's principles? Do we focus primarily on promoting the health and welfare of people, creating an atmosphere that, that is healthy for people, or do we focus on punishing rule breakers? The founding documents of the government of the United States, there are principles laid out in those documents that all human beings are equal in God's eyes and have the fundamental right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If we understand those ideals through Rules versus design law, what difference does it make? Design law. Understand those through design law. What's fairness and justice look like in pursuing those principles under design law? How is that implemented in the government? The government has a responsibility to create equal opportunity for all people to realize their dreams, develop their abilities, maximize their level of functioning, pursue their happiness, so the government would seek to eliminate exploitation, discrimination, create healthy atmospheres where individuals are free to exercise their abilities without systemic or institutional arbitrary obstructions. Such a government could implement agencies to assist those with genuine disabilities and protect the weak and the vulnerable, again, creating opportunity for individual growth and development, such as Education, elementary and high school education that's provided by the government for all people. But the government making education available, that's an opportunity for people to be educated. You can't actually make people learn. They have to avail themselves of the opportunity. That's the design law application of the principle. The imposed law, though, rules version... Fairness and justice is not equal opportunity. It is a government uh, acting to um, cause or ensure equal outcomes for everyone. Everyone gets the same stuff. You get the same, everybody gets a house, everybody gets uh, this, everybody gets that. And the government then works to implement taxes, regulations, policies, and rules to take from others and give to others to make sure everybody gets equal outcome. That's the rules approach. We have to be fair. 
Johnny worked really hard, and Johnny had a bicycle uh, paper route, and Johnny earned some money, and that money lets him go to camp. Susie, she just laid around watching TV and playing video games, and then when Johnny's going to get crying, okay, well, we'll take some of Johnny's savings and give it to Susie so she can go to camp too. Because we need the same outcome. Do you see the destructiveness inherent in this? If you do that for Susie... What is, how does Susie develop as an individual? She develops entitlement. That's how she develops. But did she develop a sense of, of integrity? No. Does she develop a sense of autonomy? No. Does she develop a sense of purpose? No. She... No, it's destructive to the character of the individual when we do this. It's very destructive. And what happens over here to Johnny? Why work? Yes. Why work? It's discouraging. But it gets more complicated when Susie has children. That gets more complicated because are those children? This is the thing that I, I you know. Do you do you give them lunch when mom doesn't give them any? So who's responsible for the children? The mom is. And so are there agencies involved when mothers are negligent, destructive, abusive, drug addicts won't care for their kids that are supposed to come in and protect the kids? Now, we are an inefficient system. We have lots of flawed people. It doesn't work like it should. But the, those systems are set up to remove the kids from destructive and abusive environments. Um, they're there. They don't work all that well in my view. But the goal is there, and it's flawed because of the human foibles and the human limitations. And, but the real, but this is the problem. This is the problem with the rule system. You'll see it in the news all the time. Be discerning. You'll see it at the border. You'll see this, this, this corruption. The primary responsibility for the health of children is the parents of the children. They are primarily responsible. The parents of the children have the prime responsibility. But what you hear when parents come from certain places and they try to swim the Rio Grande with a small child and then the children and and the dad uh, drowned, there's no sense of responsibility. Why did the parent put that child in that circumstance? Why did the parent uh, uh, try to do with this? No, it's the U.S. government's fault for not actually reaching out and and going across there and building a bridge and bringing them over safely. It was our fault for not saving them from themselves. I'm telling you, it's a corrupt system. It's a corrupt concept that's being projected out there. And you need to be thoughtful about this. Does the government have responsibility? Yes. What's its responsibility? In how it governs itself. Just like a human being has a responsibility. How you govern yourself. Okay? The primary responsibility for children are their parents. So if you want to read a good book about this, it's a little bit old now. Uh, it's called The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Lasky. It talks about the late 19th century when churches and organizations took care of the poor in a discriminating way and how we moved from discriminating about what kinds of needs were necessary. And when you use the word discriminating, you mean in a thoughtful way that uses judicial... Deciding who... Who actually really genuinely needs it. The only way you can do that is to know the person. And the circumstance. And it... it in New York City, for example, they divided the city into 28 parishes and all the charitable organizations. The volunteers never had more than two families. They were responsible to try to get them employed, make sure the children, and so forth. And that's the Christian model that we've departed from in this country. But if you want to read that book, it'll, it's an eye-opener, The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Alasky. Yep. It's very corrupt because what happens is there are individuals who become empowered 
by promoting that system, and they don't want the system to die because they lose their power. I'm going to move on. Moving on. Sunday's lesson. Uh, First paragraph, it says, uh, As we have already noted, God sees and hears people who are in distress and trouble. Most often in the Psalms, we hear um, those cries from people who have trusted in God, but are not seeing justice done. What do you say to people who feel like God doesn't hear them? They pray, but they feel like God doesn't hear their prayers. What do you say to people? Well, that's because you've got some sin in your life. That if you would get confess that sin, then he'd listen to you. Is that what you tell him? No. Do you ever hear that told to people? Yeah. So what do you tell people that they feel like God doesn't heal them, hear them? I tell them. Some feelings can lie. Bingo. Feelings can lie. James chapter 1. We're tempted by our own evil desires or feelings. Feelings are unreliable barometers of reality. What is the truth? Now, you also then can examine what are you praying for, okay? Because if we mean here, if we mean by here, knows what I'm saying, that's one thing. We mean by here, answers me and does what I want, that's another thing, okay? So what do you mean? You have to clarify. What do you mean by here? Well, I've been praying. I had one patient, seriously, she was really mad at God because she'd been praying that her lungs, her lung disease would get better. Prayed, prayed, prayed every day for years. I said, have you stopped smoking yet? (laughs) Well, she said, No. Well, God doesn't listen to my prayer. And I said, no, God does listen to your prayer, but he listens to your actions more. You've chosen this for yourself. He's not going to overrule your choice. So I read this in a compilation called Prayer, page 254. I want to share it with you. Heavenly beings are appointed to answer the prayers of those who are working unselfishly for the interest of the cause of God. The very highest angels in the heavenly courts are appointed to work out the prayers each which ascend to God for the advancement of the cause of God. Each angel has a particular post of duty, which he will not, uh, which he is not permitted to leave for any other place. If he should leave, the powers of darkness would gain an advantage. Day by day, the conflict between good and evil is going on. Why is it that those who have made who have many opportunities and advantages, do not realize the intensity of this work. They should be intelligent in regard to God. Uh, In regard to, to this, God is the ruler. By his supreme power, he holds in check and controls earthly potentates. I wonder how he does that. What kind of laws are in place there? Through his agencies, he does, does the work which was ordained before the foundation of the world. What work was ordained before the foundation of the world? What's he seeking to achieve? As a people, we do not understand, as we should, the great conflict going on between invisible agencies, the controversy between loyal and disloyal angels. What do you think we don't understand? Could it be the battle for the hearts and minds that we don't understand going on between these horses? That angels on both sides are working to influence the hearts and minds? You see that in Daniel chapter 10. When Gabriel comes and speaks to Daniel and says, as soon as you prayed, I was dispatched. And I went to, to um, is it Darius? I went to Darius and began to, but the, but the prince of Persia opposed me. And he called the prince of Greece. And Satan is the prince of this world. So he's talking about evil angels working against him. And he's influenced. And they're trying to inspire selfishness. And, and a, a good, a godly angel is trying to inspire truth and love. Angel, evil angels are constantly at work planning their line of attack, controlling 
as commanders, kings, and rulers, the disloyal human forces. I call upon the ministers of Christ to press home upon the understanding of all who come within reach of their voice the truth of the ministration of angels. Do not indulge in fanciful speculation. The written word is our only safety. We must pray as old Daniel that we may be guarded by heavenly intelligences. As ministering spirits, angels are sent forth to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation. Pray, my brethren, pray as you have never prayed before. We are not prepared for the Lord's coming. We need to make thorough work for eternity. And so I, after reading this, want to ask for your prayers for this ministry. Your prayers that that God will hold back the forces of darkness, open the the channels of, of communication opportunity. Pray, pray as you've never prayed. When you think of the heavenly sanctuary and Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, what comes to mind? What images do you have? See, I have always envisioned, I shouldn't say always, for a long, long time, I have always uh, envisioned Christ as a great commander at the central hub of the the heavenly government, directing all of the powers and agencies and resources of heaven for, for our salvation and good. That's how I see very active stuff going on. And then I read this and I wanted to share it with you. This is out of uh, also the book Prayer, page 255. Oh, that all could behold our precious Savior as he is, a Savior. Let his hand draw aside the veil which conceals his glory from our eyes. It shows him in his high and holy place. Where's his high and holy place, right? What do we see? Our Savior, not in a position of silence and inactivity. He is surrounded with heavenly intelligences, cherubim and seraphim, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of angels. All these heavenly beings have one object above all others in which they are intensely interested. His church in the world of corruption. They are working for Christ under his commission to save to the uttermost all who look to him and believe in him. Isn't that cool? Is that what you think about when you think of the heavenly sanctuary? He's up there directing every agency and every power at his disposal for your salvation and for the promoting the gospel. That's what he's doing. That's what this document describes in an in, 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 in interesting way. From the, taking the historic view and repurposing it into understanding it through design law and what Christ is actually accomplishing. Oh, I've got some more fun stuff to share with you guys. Now, um, Russell said that we weren't going to get out of Sunday's lesson. I stand corrected. <laughs> uh, uh, and, we, and we are now moving out of... Uh, no, we're still in Sunday's lesson. Okay? And it asks us to read um, Psalms 9, and we're, uh, 7 through 9 and 13 through 20. We won't get to read it all. I'm just going to read sections. I want to read a little section from the NIV. Then I'm going to read some sections from the Remedy. And let's talk about that. Start verse 9. Uh, uh, the 7 through 12. We'll read that. The Lord reigns forever. This is NIV. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the people with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in the time of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For, the Lord, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who, who, you, who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood, remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. And then we're going to read it from the remedy now. Understand this, the creator reigns forever. From his throne, he governs the universe, sustaining the laws upon which life is built. He rules the universe in harmony with his character and design of love. 
He will govern with honor and integrity and harmony with his principles of love. The Lord is a sanctuary of healing and safety for the battered and abused, a fortress of freedom when trapped by life's problems. Those who have personal experience with your character of love will trust you. For you, O Lord, never abandon those who seek friendship with you. Let your life be a song of love to the Lord who governs in perfection. Tell the entire world the truth about him and his methods of love. When he carefully procures the remedy, he thinks of the sin sick. He does not ignore their cry for help. What do you think? Did you hear a difference? Did they have a different tone to you? What, what do you think the core difference in the tone is? I will tell you what it is. The NIV and every other Bible translation has been done by sincere people of good intention who have grown up in a world in which it is assumed that God's law functions like human law. Because Constantine corrupted, when Constantine converted, Christianity became corrupted with imperialism. And so when they read and translate, they innocently and in good intention see imperialism, judicial processes, God is the judge inflicting punishment, justice as a human law court. And they write that stuff into the translations. I purposely in the remedy seek to reframe God as creator and his laws as design laws. And you, I think you can hear the difference. uh, There was a couple more in the notes. I wish we had time because I had several more they wanted us to read in the lesson this week, Psalms, and I had them from the remedy I wanted to share with you. Can I share one more from the remedy with you? Uh, This is Psalms 101 in Tuesday's lesson, and I'll read it from the remedy. Is that the one I wanted to read? No, we'll read, um, actually, it's a little shorter. We'll read Monday's lesson, which is um, Psalms 82. And I'll just read the remedy version. God takes a stand against the assembly of false gods. In fact, the NIV starts, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. This is the, uh, this is the remedy. God takes a stand against the assembly of false gods. He presents his diagnosis regarding all pagan gods. He says, when will you stop using a list of rules to govern? When will you stop pr- protecting selfishness with your legal system? Do what is actually right, healthy and loving for people. Protect the poor and the fatherless. Do what is right for the poor and oppressed, what heals and restores. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver from the power. Deliver them from the power of selfishness. These false gods don't understand reality. They don't understand my design law, how I built life to function. They operate in the darkness of rules enforcement system, and the world is crumbling all around them. I say to you, fallen angels pretending to be gods. Even though you are all children of the Most High, you will die like mortals. Your life will end like that of an ordinary ruler. Rise up, O God, and diagnose the earth, for the entire world belongs to you. Do you, do you hear? I don't know if you were following along in the NIV and the others, but uh, you can hear the difference if you, if you read along. I think there's one more thing I wanted to share. So it is a quotation in the first paragraph. It says, The Psalms of David pass through the whole range of experience, from the depths of conscious guilt and self-condemnation to the loftiest faith and the most exalted communing with God. His life record declares that sin can bring only shame and woe, but that God's love and mercy can reach to the deepest depths that faith uh, will lift up and uh, repenting soul to share the adoption of the sons of God. Of all assurances which he would contain, it was the, one of the strongest testimonies to the faithful, uh, faithfulness, justice, and the covenant mercy of God. 
So again, it talks about justice. God's justice in dealing with David. Was God, did God do justice by forgiving and transforming David? Did Jesus have to die in order for God to forgive David? Did Jesus have to die in order for God to transform David? Yes. Yes, get your mind around that. God could forgive David because God's forgiving. But David still had a corrupt character. He needed an infusion of righteousness that could not come except from a Savior who developed a perfect righteous character. So Ellen White writes in Desire of Ages 762, the law requires righteousness. Exactly why the law of respiration requires you to breathe. Requires righteousness because that's how life is built to operate. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. There's forgiveness, forbearance, forgiveness right there. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character. Notice what's happening. Transformers, healing, uh, regeneration from receiving the character of Christ. A goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Notice that justice And justifying is fixing what's wrong in the sinner. There's nothing here about a declared righteousness, even though you're not. It is healing, transformational, renewal. You become the righteousness of God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that when Adam and Eve rebelled and infected themselves with fear and selfishness, that you did not abandon us, that you loved the world so much that you sent your only son to achieve for us what we never could achieve, a perfect trust relationship in his humanity with you, developing a perfect sinless human character and eliminating the temptations of fear and self-centeredness. And now we ask that the Spirit will take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, transform us to love you and others more than self, that we can stand true to you in all circumstances and that you will open the avenue send your angels from heaven to stand by each of us this week give us opportunity to share your truth remove the obstacles in this church that are trying to shut down this end time light and open uh, open avenues for the brightness of your glory to shine over the earth that you might come soon we pray in your holy name amen